Hello, and welcome to the Summit Church Podcast. Our messages are designed to help teach and equip you on your journey to lead people to follow Christ. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage you, no matter where you are on your journey towards Christ. If you have questions, want to talk, or want to learn more about Summit, visit us at summitniles.com. Thanks for listening. Good morning, church. Um, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here at Summit. Um, I'm grateful to be with you. You know that what we're doing here on a Sunday morning is important. Uh, it's important that we come back and do this every week, not in a, not in a works fulfillment sort of way, <clears throat> but in a strength-building, worship-enriching, great commission-carrying-out sort of way. Um, our worship services together are, are the cadence or the rhythm by which we live out our mission of leading people to follow Christ. This is, this is the heartbeat of our local church, gathering together Sunday after Sunday. We do this because when we come together, we remember who we are. We remember who we are. We remember that we're a family, that we have been united by the blood of Jesus, and we have become brothers and sisters in Christ. We remember we're a family. We're, we're an army. We're drawing up battle plans. We're fortifying our position, our defensive positions against the enemy. We're, an, we're, we're a university. We're deepening and applying our knowledge of God and His Word, and we're a hospital. We're binding up the wounded. We're applying the salve of the gospel, and we are, we're an organism, a living moving body, following Christ the head, carrying out the will of the Father by the power of the Spirit. That is who we are as a church body. This is important, what we're doing here week after week. So I commend you for being here, remembering your purpose by linking arms, engaging God and worship in His Word. Um, I'm grateful as well. Uh, God has blessed us with those who help us along the way in that area of, of teaching, uh, preaching. I'm humbled to be able to partner with um, with not just Dan, but uh, those like Tom Harmon and Fred Prince over the last two weeks. Um, these last two weeks' messages from God's Word have gripped me. Am I the kind of worshiper that God is looking for? And do I have a snapshot view of God that is limiting my worship of Him? And so as I strained this week to listen to what it was that God wanted to say to us, um, I felt that God continued, didn't know exactly how all of this was going to land, but I felt that God was continuing to put on my heart that which has been the underlying theme from the last four weeks, worshiping our God for who He is. So we have not been in a, a package series of sorts over the last um, weeks post-Grow 23, but the theme of worship has been at minimum at the forefront of the application of the teaching that we've heard. So Palm Sunday, we learned that worshiping the King is to cast aside our human agendas, be it wokeness or a misunderstanding of Christian dominion, and we're to align our own hearts with His will and His words. Search me, O God, and reveal any wicked way in me. For authentic worship is allegiance of the heart on display through surrender and obedience. Easter Sunday, we discovered that the empty tomb assures us that God's promises are not empty, that is. That we are not left in death, as Dan just mentioned, that alone should bring us to worship indeed. And again, these last two weeks, am I blind to who Jesus really is and what He is doing, or am I worshiping in spirit and in truth? So listening to God this week, it was almost as if I was to continue compelling us forward in what seems to be a, a growing corporate 
consciousness of God and His movement and the state of our being which results from such an apprehension, that which is worship. And so I mentioned this in first service. Um, I didn't have all that super clear to me even by the near the end of the week. And um, as I was trying to listen and dig into what it is I was supposed to bring today, um, one, of, one of the parts of Pastor Caleb's job, his favorite part, is when he has to plan a worship set without knowing exactly what the preacher is going to be preaching on. That's his favorite. Um, but as this began to ruminate in my heart, and he had already set out the worship for the week, and rehearsal was Thursday night, I went and I checked what it is that he had been planning, and it aligned perfectly with what it is that God was putting on my heart. So there's a picture that God gave me this week, maybe seems silly to you, but I, I got this picture in my, in my mind um, of our church all together, seeing many of your faces. We're all, we're all joined together on this rough-hewn, make-do raft of sorts, and we're careening down the side of a mountain in a landslide of God's glory, the terrifying excitement of it all flying in our faces. Meanwhile, God hands me an oar and says, try to keep up. That's the picture I got. I feel like Hobbes in the back of the Red Flyer wagon, holding on for dear life, flying down the hill, following Calvin's lead, having to trust in where he's taking us. So God, what would you have me do? Tell them about me, he said. Move from the snapshot to a deeper understanding that conforms to the truth of who I really am. Find me in my word. And so that is our aim today, to look to God's word, to focus on the object of our faith, allowing his majesty, his glory, and his might continue us forward in worship to behold our God, to behold our God. So I'll let you know up front I'm pulling a bit of a Tom Harmon today. I'll be reading many, many scriptures, not drilling down on one in particular. Some of them may come quickly, so write down and get what you can. So surely as we begin our excursion of beholding God, I think it's important to take a few minutes here at the beginning to communicate and reiterate that this is the main purpose of dwelling in God's Word, to behold Him, not just look at Him. John didn't say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said, behold that carries a different weight to it. Set your gaze. Hold eye contact. Be gripped. Consider the weight of he who stands before you. And so we dwell in Scripture to behold God. And while the call to dwell in God's Scriptures is certainly a critical one, you'll hear that often from here. Rightly, the Bible is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It is where we find knowledge of God and His will for our lives. But it is also a cliche, and I'll say challenging undertaking, that if many of us were to openly confess, our practice of dwelling in Scripture to behold God oft feels empty and less than compelling. While we may be intrigued, perhaps even fascinated by what we find in the pages of Scripture, we may not find it moving or changing us, or we can feel distant from its story. Why is this? In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer suggests that the answer to this question lies in the perspective from which we read it, what it is we are looking for as we read and study the pages of Scripture. So in a, in a, in a simple view of our Bible, we are taken into a world that is very different than our own. It is filled with places and people, cultures and movements from thousands of years ago, and an Eastern world that is very separated from how we see and know ourselves situated in the now. And so 
as we read of Abraham and, and Moses and God dealing with the Israelites and their enemies, David, his triumph over Goliath and his roller coaster kingship, or the prophets' warning of idol worship and revealing judgment against sin, maybe the disciples carrying the gospel out and ultimately losing their lives because of it, Paul calling out sin that seems egregious and maybe out of the context that we even understand. We feel, we can feel that we're as if we're on the outside looking in, as if those things and those people are from another world that is not our own. We feel that we are spectators or, or a remoteness from the biblical experience. So we can find ourselves resolving to believe the biblical account, but failing to see, feel, and understand the weight of intimacy that is available to us with God through His Word. So to overcome this, I think we need to understand this crucial point. Too often as we read the Bible, we are seeking the link to us in the now, where we're at, I think in the wrong place. And let me explain. As we hope for some life-moving message, as we look, we often look for it in the connection of our situation to the situations of the various Bible characters and their dealings with God. Now, seeing the Bible this way makes it primarily a human story. The Bible is anything but a human story, and you should be very careful of any blog, video series, teaching content, or otherwise that teaches doctrine from a human-first perspective, or that paints the Bible as the human project. While we can and should draw truth and understanding, hear what I'm saying, we should and can draw truth and understanding by considering the lives and characteristics or the challenges of men and women in biblical times. We need, in order to do that well, is to focus, rather, on that which has not changed from their time to now and is exactly the same. That is God Himself. The Bible is not simply a collection of human stories that lends itself to the betterment of our race as we understand it. It is not a self-help manual. The Bible is a unified, perfectly congruent historical narrative revealing the one true God of the universe and His perfect plan for the rescue and redemption of created mankind. Even this morning, as we said, we want to hear, share your story. But did you notice what Dan said with that? Share your story. We want to know what God is doing. Scripture is the revelation of God and His doings. So as we look to God's Word, beginning to read God's Word from that perspective, understand that He is revealing Himself and His character. It is from there who He is and what He has done, that we begin to understand who we are and what we do. He is the hero of every story. Let that change and form you. As His character and personality is revealed, let it move you further away from yourself and closer to Him. Furthermore, Jesus, whom the Old Testament foreshadows and funnels towards and reveals to us pre-incarnate, God the Son, Jesus, is the exegete of the Father, meaning He explains or is the explanation of the Father to us. The life of Jesus as recorded to us in the Gospels reveals the Father. He and the Father are one. So as we see Christ, we are being revealed to who the Father is and what He does. So what are the things that He loves, that He abhors? How does He feel? How does He act? Jesus told his followers that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, not to be rid of it. 
In Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, it says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. And after He provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And here is really where I want to dwell today. Understanding first that Holy Scripture, the Old Testament and the New, Jesus' embodiment of it is the revelation, being the revelation of the majesty of God to us. Starting there, can we consider, as we have been doing, can we continue to consider, rather, behold the God of the Bible, the one true God as revealed to us in Jesus Christ, and would we continue worshiping Him with our lives as any other response falls short? So for the rest of our time together, I want us to think about the word majesty. We're saying that song this morning, majesty. And that word, when I hear it, maybe when you hear it, rightly conjures up images of royalty. Her majesty, the queen, passed away several months ago. There's a kingdom context to this word. It means greatness is used to ascribe glory and honor to that which is majestic and great, authoritative and sovereign over a kingdom. So in biblical context, majesty is used to acknowledge the incomparable greatness of the eternal God, His resulting eternal kingdom, and invite a response of worship by ascribing glory and honor. That's what majesty is and what it's used for. So Psalm 96 makes use of such language. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise His name, proclaim His salvation day after day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among the peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all lowercase g, gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and glory are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all ye families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. So church, this morning, let us behold our majestic God together. And as we consider what Scripture reveals about the majesty of God, the first thing to consider is the personhood of God. God's nature, His very nature is majestic. The very nature or character, the person of God holds majesty. Psalm 93, the Lord reigns for He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. How do we begin to even behold something that has no beginning and no end? A God from all eternity. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. Not God began. In the beginning, God. Job got a master class from, from God himself being put in his place. How do we behold something like God? After questioning God, God questioned him. Chapter 38 of Job, I want you to listen to this. 
Maybe close your eyes if that is helpful for you. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the darkest deepness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. What is the way to the abode of light? Where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From, whom, from whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the chains of the pleads? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who gives the ibis wisdom or gives the rooster understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clouds of earth stick together? Behold our God. That goes on for two more chapters. Exodus 15, 11 begs the question then, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? We need to understand in his holiness, in his majestic holiness, God is not like us. He is set apart. He is cut from a different cloth, just who he is, pure, spotless, righteous, without sin, the antithesis of evil. We don't have a context to understand the degree of our separation from him. And so we're left to worship by asking the question, who, who is like you, O Lord? When Isaiah came face to face with the glory of God, he cried, woe is me. Moses had to cover his face after meeting with God, lest it blind the Israelites. 
Church, at best, we have an ounce of understanding of God's glory and His majesty, for it is all that we could handle. If we truly knew the full weight of the glory of God, our priorities would change in a millisecond. We would use every last breath in our lungs, weeping at our iniquity, crying out His praises, and marveling at His majestic beauty. There is a day when that's all we will do. There will be no more tears, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And for those believers who have put their trust in Christ, we will cry holy, holy, holy forevermore and worship at His feet, never tiring of that eternal song. We will continually be overwhelmed by His majesty. God's very nature is majestic and His truth is majestic. If the personhood of God is robed in majesty, set apart in holiness, surely that which flows from Him is equally as majestic. God's truth holds greatness simply out of its purity and the fact that it never changes as that whom it is from never changes. Isaiah 40 says that all people are like grass and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. So contrary to our flesh and the things that we speak that are unstable and inconsistent, God's word never fails because it is always accurate and it never changes. Psalm 119, your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. All your commands are true. Long ago, I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. I think of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 as he battles the temptation thrown at him by the enemy in the wilderness, and he rebukes Satan, reminding him that man does not live merely on consumable bread, rather we are sustained by the life-giving, ever-true, and relevant word of God that comes from his very mouth. The word of God is great and majestic in its stability, in its sureness. There has not been one iota of a moment in the expanse of time that God's word is not lined up perfectly with the reality in which we exist. That alone, that alone should give us pause as we consider the authority by which he speaks. He's never wrong. God stands behind His promises and His demands, His imperatives and His warnings, His corrections and purposes, and the natural order in which He created and set forth in our world, bearing truth to who He is. God's Word is eternal. It is our life-giving revelation. Jesus Himself said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away, and Scripture cannot be set aside. That's Matthew 24 and John 10, respectively, if you're keeping track. God's character is majestic, His truth is majestic, and surely God's ways are majestic. God's ways, the things that He does, the things He does that reflect His character and His truth. He is not an idle God, lazily detaching Himself from that which is before Him. Rather, He demonstrates His majestic authority by exercising His divine reality. I am who I am. Exodus 15, your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. 
Psalm 145, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. The writer of Deuteronomy does this very thing. He reminds the Israelites, remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God. His majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, the signs he performed and the things he did in the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his whole country. God, in his sovereign majesty, carries out his holy and perfect will in such greatness that none can stand in his way. He shows his freedom and lordship, exercising judgment between sinners, causing some to hear the gospel while others do not hear it. Some are moved to repentance while others are stayed in their unbelief. God owing mercy to none, but extending grace nonetheless. He blesses those that love him, this done in humbling ways that he might alone receive the glory from such blessing. He hates the sin of man, using both inward and outward pains and griefs to move our hearts away from compromise and disobedience. He brings down the wicked, sometimes in awesome displays of authority, sometimes in just giving them up to their own demise as they follow their own paths straight into eternity without him. Yet he still seeks fellowship with us that we might be unified with him in his holiness and his purpose of redemption. Isaiah 46, remember this, keep it in mind, take it to heart, you rebels. Remember this, keep it in mind, take it to heart. Three times he says the same thing in different ways. Remember the former things, those of long ago, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. In other words, God does what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants Now, it'll be worthwhile to remember as I say that, to note that all of this activity, all that he does, happens within the confines of who he is. The majestic nature that we've already referenced, meaning God cannot operate outside of his nature. As his nature is, so he does. Now, this should not trouble us as we are somehow limiting God with this statement. We are simply pointing out his immutability. What he reveals about himself is that he doesn't change. I am who I am. He is self-existent. For as Jesus is himself God, Hebrews 13.8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The prophet Malachi 3.6, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. And in James 1.17, we read that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The majesty of God, who does not change, flows out in all his ways, equally majestic, equally unchanging, bookended by the goodness of who he is. Psalm 145, 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. 
we should be grateful that God does not operate outside of His nature. As He is holy, so He is loving. God's nature is majestic. His truth is majestic. His ways are majestic. And finally, God's purposes are majestic. Again, as God's very nature is majestic, all that He does to enact then the truth of who He is results in a great and magnificent glory. And that glory is one in which He extends to us that we get to humbly participate in. This is what the high and exalted one says in Isaiah 57, 15. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. The God that we just described and talked about is revealed in Scripture. This is who I am, but I also dwell with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This participation in His majesty happens as He, the high and holy one, majesty, comes to revive the brokenness of our spiritual hearts. We get to be participants in His majesty. Listen to Jesus' prayer in John 17, just prior to His crucifixion. Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You, for You granted Him authority over all people that He might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. As simply as I can put it, God brings glory to himself through the salvation of men as accomplished through Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. It is now within that reconciliation, that redemption and restoration unto God that we are participants in his majesty. The song we sang earlier today, Majesty, was gripping me in my seat. We got to the, to the bridge. All hail, Redeemer, hail. That word redeemer strikes me. Not just all hail, creator, hail. Not all hail, sovereign one of the universe, hail. Truly he is those things. But God in all of his might, in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his magnificence, who is like you, none, O Lord, steps into time out of eternity and chooses to be with you and rescue you and to call you unto himself. So we can then sing, all hail, Redeemer, hail. Do you know what it means to be redeemed? The God of the heavens, who needs no help, 
who is beyond our comprehension, comes to his creation in Jesus Christ and offers us redemption, taking our place on the cross. How majestic is our God. Behold him. I think Micah 5.4 summarizes this well. He will stand and shepherd his flock. This is Jesus we're speaking of. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. I want to invite the team to come as we close our time together. What do we do with all of this? How can we swallow a, a full comprehension of the goodness and the greatness, the, the majesty of God, which I barely scraped the surface of? The reality is that we can't. We can't fully comprehend it. God has given us great faculties indeed, but it is impossible for us to fully wrap our hearts and minds, our finite hearts and minds, around the infinite God and all that He has done and accomplished and is doing. But while we cannot fully comprehend it, and while that, again, should make way for our worship, God, in His goodness, by His Spirit, bears witness with our spirits and reveals himself to us. And his majesty shapes our hearts to the tune of his glory. And his majesty shapes our obedience to the truth of his word. So our response then is simply to worship. To let his praise be ever on our lips. To let our bodies be living sacrifices as we live out that which he has called us to. Magnifying Christ, our living Savior to the world around us. If this is our God, this is who he is, he loves us, this is what he does. He saves us, and we are truly a taken back by that. How would we not take that out to the world? I got schooled by my nine-year-old the other day. She came home from the library. She was kind of down a little bit. I could just tell something was going on. She was kind of sad. We were on a walk. She was riding her scooter kind of behind me. Sad. Kelly, get up here. What's going on? What's, what are you sad about? I'm just sad. Why are you sad? I met a girl at the library today. She never heard of Jesus before. I said, how did... How'd that come up? Like, how did you? 
So I, we were just playing with one of the houses, the playhouses there, and I just asked her. I asked her if she knew Jesus. She had no idea who he was. She goes, so I told her. I told her he was God. I told her that he loves her. And that he died for her. And she said, she didn't, she said that she didn't believe that. And it broke her, and it broke her heart. When was the last time we had the boldness of a child? One who knows their Savior. That we would behold him enough to share the good news of the gospel with those around us. That's worship. That's worship. I want to invite you to stand. I want to close with this benediction from Revelation chapter 1. just want to read this over us. And then our team, we're going to, we're going to close in singing Christ be magnified. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. To him who has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message from the Summit Church Podcast. Again, if you have questions, visit us at summitniles.com. Now go and be the church in the world.